Welcome to CJSW Writer's Block, broadcasting from the University of Calgary at 90.9 on your FM dial. I'm host and producer Dimphony Dronick. I'm host and producer Cody Dronick. Our show airs on the third Wednesday of every month at 8.30 p.m. And if you've missed it live, you can check out the podcast at cjsw.com. Tonight on Writer's Block, we sit down and talk with Doreen Vanderstoop. And later on in the program, we are joined by local Alberta poet Bertram Bickersteth, who has just released his debut book of poetry, The Response of Weeds. Doreen Vanderstoop is a Calgary-based writer, storyteller, and musician. Her short fiction has been published by Loft on 8th and Prairie Fire and has appeared online at Montreal Sarai, Prairie Journal, Epiphany Magazine, and others. As a storyteller musician, she intersperses songs among tales of all genres, including her own original stories. Doreen performs for audiences of all ages at schools, libraries, festivals, conferences, and more. She leads workshops to ignite in others a passion for the power of story, oral and written. Watershed is Doreen's debut novel. Doreen Thunderstoop, welcome to CJSW. You're here to talk to us about your debut novel, Watershed, published by Calgary's Freehand Books. Let's start by giving our listeners a sense of the novel. Sure. It's lovely to be here with you, Daphne. So Watershed is essentially a story about family. It's a story about conflicting ambitions between a mother and her son. And it's all set against the backdrop of uh, cataclysmic climate change effect in Alberta. So, um, So Willa lives in southern Alberta on a goat farm. And her son is a hydrogeologist, and he goes off to Calgary to pursue his career. So all of this takes place in and around the year 2058. Yeah, and in that, you've woven so much um, that is kind of fantastic and surreal. And yet, I think one of the things that is so incredibly uh, profound about this novel is that um, it all seems utterly plausible, like it could happen tomorrow, and it makes perfect sense. I, ha- I have you. to say that that reading it um, at the end of a miserably long winter and during sort of the beginning of this surreal thing called a global pandemic was uh, gripping, chilling, um, like good job you you know <laughs> a lot of times when you when you read um things set in the future it you're you're able to take a step back and kind of go well that maybe can happen but and i did not have that at all it was so there are so many elements that you managed to weave in um that are so believable I was really curious about how it came to you. You know, how, how what first inspired you to write this, what, what I think is called cli-fi, climate fiction? It's called cli-fi, that's right, climate fiction, yeah. Um, it, it actually goes back uh, a, long, a long way for me to, to when I was a child growing up here in Calgary. Now, I was never, I never lived on a farm, but I remember from a very early age, always kind of empathizing with the plight of farmers and and every spring listening to those 
weather reports. Um, and I always hoped that there'd be just enough precipitation and just enough sunlight for those farmers to grow all their food and, and, and raise those animals. And so I'm, I'm not really sure where that came from, but, uh, but that always kind of stayed with me. And then when, when the whole climate change uh, issue really came into the news, um, it really occurred to me that that would make the job of farming in Alberta that much more difficult um, because of the whole danger of, of the melting of the glaciers. And so that was sort of the, the seed of, of the story. And, and I wanted it to be said in Southern Alberta and I wanted the family to be Dutch because that's my own heritage. And, uh, and so Willa was born and that's kind of where, um, where, where the novel started. She's the one who kind of drove it forward all the time. Whenever I, took a break from it or, you know, went to take a course because I thought, what do I know about novel writing? Uh, <laughs> then she would always be there standing in my mind in front of her log house waiting for me to tell her story and that kind of uh, drove it on. But but it's true, I did, I did want it to be set um, in the near future, so I didn't want it to be too science fiction-y. I wanted it to be quite, quite real and, and, uh, and hopefully uh, relatable. I think part of what makes it relatable is that it's a uniquely Albertan lens, you know, agriculture, drought, and pipelines, um, and the controversy around pipelines. So what's really brilliant is the twist that you take um, on all the tropes of pipeline building politics. You turn them on their head because the, this controversial pipeline in Watershed carries life-saving water and you would think you would think on the face of it that that would be something universally welcomed and yet it isn't um there the conflicts that happened in 2058 the when the novel takes place are really not that much different than the the small town conflicts around oil and gas pipelines that take place today um, so I'm curious about um, all manner of, of the research that you did around that, because I can tell you as someone who spent 25 years as an engagement person and safety person in oil and gas, you nailed town halls and things like that really accurately. And Thank you. And part of the thread of the story, of course, from Willa's point of view, everything is about her precious goats and enough food and water for the goats. But for Daniel, her son's point of view, it's learning to navigate how to tell the story of the pipeline in a way that people can hear it, you know, that which is kind of the element of the key element of engagement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit more about how that whole piece evolved for you. Well, uh, as a uh, as a fiction writer, it's pretty fun to turn tropes on their head. <laughs> That's probably one of the most fun parts of of fiction writing, and I certainly uh, set out to to do that. and And the novel, as it went along, presented lots of opportunities to do that. So that that was a lot of fun. The, the pipeline, the the slipping of the pipeline from oil and gas to water, and reversing that flow, bringing the water back to Alberta. I thought that was kind of, um, and it was just kind of a fun way to, to think about uh, the pipelines in a whole new way. And you're right, there was still a lot of conflict uh, around that in, in the book for sure. So um, 
you know, I mean, even though it's a substance that everybody needs and wants, there's, there's always going to be conflict around that. In terms of the, the research, I, I did quite, quite a bit of research in those, those early years because it took me about 10 years, you know, from start to, to publication to, to get this book done. And uh, the early years were spent in a lot of uh, research. I, I read, well, fiction, uh, of course, as well. So I read Mar- Margaret Atwood's The Mad Adam series, um, you know, was, was really, like I really uh, embraced that. Um, because she she does do this near future kind of uh, storytelling as well, which which I love. Um, but I also researched uh, the people who are my heroes, who are the scientists who write about what's actually happening in the here and now. And I read people like Robert William Sanford and um, articles by David Schindler, who is one of the preeminent water specialists here in Alberta. Um, Andrew Nikaforik has written environmental books. Um, Kevin Van Tegen writes about uh, Alberta and writes about environmental protection. And, and Bob Sanford in particular was one that, uh, that I went to time and again because he's written prolifically about the Mountain West and about water issues. He actually works with the UN, UN University actually, on, on water issues. And he's written upwards of 30, 30 books about uh, the topic. And so and he writes beautifully and very um, his science is very accessible. So so that was a really important part of it. But as you can imagine, the resources are virtually endless. And at, at one point, I had to say to myself, "Okay, enough! Like you've got to stop. <laughs> you've got to stop procrastinating. You've got to sit down and write this story." And so um, so yeah. So I finally did get my butt in the chair, and I did uh, you know get it done but even then along the way you know there's raising a family and 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 again taking courses and and so it it took quite a bit of time but that research was absolutely invaluable and and those those people really are our heroes and you know that science if there's if there's anything that this time has taught us it's uh we have to listen to the science and pay attention to the scientists because that will help us navigate these really difficult waters mm-hmm. part of the yeah. time <laughs> yeah well, and, and I can't quite remember how it goes, but something about, you know, what you believe isn't a fact, but, the, but scientists, their whole trade is in fact. So maybe exactly. give them a little more credit. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I bow to their greatness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand from following you on Facebook that you also developed a, an affection for goats. And speaking of research, <laughs> I did. I love them. Oh my goodness, they're so so sweet. I I actually did cold calls to goat farmers in Alberta way back when because I thought, well, I you know I wanted my character to be a goat farmer, and I knew nothing about that. As I said, I'm a city girl from way back, and uh, they were so generous with me. I went down to the Vandrista farm in um, near Lethbridge. Um, went to another farm near Okotoks, but I spent five days with uh, Felix and Andrea Mueller, uh, who live southwest of Edmonton, and uh, near Warburg, actually, Alberta. And um, it's the Sunnybrook Dairy. And they are just the most wonderful people. They're originally from Switzerland. I think they came in the early 2000s. Anyway, they took me in. I stayed with them. They didn't know me from Adam, and they they had me stay, and they taught me everything 
they could over those five days. And I just absolutely fell in love with um, with the goats. Now, th- there's an incident actually in the novel where Peter, the character's Peter, um, helps a goat uh, give birth to a kid. And that actually happened to me. <laughs> so I was able to write from firsthand experience uh, from that. And it was, it was very, it was a really moving experience. And uh, I was there all by myself and she, Andrea had gone off to milk the goats. And so she said, oh yeah, she's had two and that's it. You know, it's all good. And, and then there was a third and the, uh, the third was breach. And so I had to help her. Uh, get get this kid out and then it's its little mouth was all covered with mucus and it wasn't breathing and so I held this little goat snout under under the mother goat and she started licking it and freed the airways and this little goat was able to start breathing so it was really moving and wonderful yeah so it was it was really fun to be able to uh, to give Peter that experience in the book yeah and so was that just instinctive of you to do that or did, or had you had some, some you know, goat baby first aid? <laughs> she, well, she, she, told, she I, I was there for the birth of the first two. And then she said, well, I got to go. You know, you stay here. So she had given me the glove. I had felt inside the goat myself as she was, you know, birthing, the, helping the goat birth the first two. And so I kind of had seen what she had done. And, uh, and she had kind of instructed as she was doing it, how, how it's done, what you feel for, um, you know, how you pull, you watch for the contractions. And so she kind of gave me a Reader's Digest version of it. And then I was able to apply that, you know, a half hour later when this other goal needed to come out. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> what an experience. It was quite an experience. Yes. And how beautiful to convey that in the story too for the for the younger uh character who is kind of at at loss of what to do next with his own life there's a there's a lot of characters who are on the cusp of big changes in in this story (laughs) that's true peter is certainly one of them yes and the world is on the cusp of big changes Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly Southern Alberta is, and really all of Alberta in the book, you're right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In terms of water shortage and what the future looks like for Alberta, Southern Alberta in, in 2058, uh, in the 2058 of your, your story, is is dry. And Northern Alberta, Peter goes to his um, aunt and uncle in Fort McMurray, and the Fort McMurray you describe there is uh, not the Fort McMurray, the northern cold, um, often not great summer (laughs) Fort McMurray that I know. Mm -hmm. Was that imagined or or did your research with all these heroic scientists um, give you that path of, of what potentially it's going to look like? There, there was a sense through through my research, or you know, what I envisioned through the research was um, was these extended summers, the, these extended hot periods, sort of migrating northward, and and that's that's also why I um, had the valley fever, um, you know, the, the fungus 
mm-hmm. also mi- migrate northward because that that's a, a serious problem in, in Arizona for for people who are not from there. In fact, a lot of Canadians who travel there who don't have an immunity to the valley fever uh, fungus, they're, they're very seriously affected by that and they have serious lung issues and they develop these nodes, you know, inside their lungs and and so it, it seemed to make sense to me that something like that, you know, as we hear about, you know, insects and, and things like that, that, that there's sort of a, a northerly migratory uh, trend for those kinds of things. And, and it was the same with the climate change trend. So definitely Fort McMurray is a much warmer place. In fact, it takes, it takes on in the novel more of the kind of climate that exists in Medicine Hat, right? In, in Western right. Medicine Hat. Yeah. And so that that sort of um, was the setting. But in in the novel, the way that I created it, northern Alberta runs out of water uh, later than southern Alberta does. So southern Alberta is, is is in much much more dire straits than the north is. Plus, the pipeline has reached the north already. So it, it's already reached Bruderheim. It's on its way south uh, through Red Deer. And so the north is already benefiting from this water that is now being desalinated in Bruderheim. And so that water is being piped to Fort McMurray. And that's why Fort McMurray is a very different place. And also oil and gas is gone. The, that oil and gas production is, is dead. And so now the big industry is the, uh, is the reclamation of all those uh, tar sand sites. And so that's, right. a, yeah. that's a big part of of it, and of course, the um, Peter's uncle is is the one who owns one of the reclamation companies. Yeah, that is a very interesting element of it too. The uh, imagining what the future of that industry looks like and where potential jobs might lie, and again, you know, funny timing, Doreen, <laughs> that that one of the things that they're talking about here today in our province is how to get some of those uh, hard-working oil and gas service people back to work through a reclamation program. (laughs) Who would have predicted that? (laughs) (laughs) It it is interesting. You know, I mean, I started this novel 10 years ago, and uh, and, and it's, it's interesting how quickly time catches up with us, because even, even at that time, People weren't not really, they, we were not really video calling back then. You know, that, no, that wasn't no. really a big thing. So this was kind of this futuristic thing. I thought, oh, in the future, everybody's going to be video calling. <laughs> and now, I mean, we're, we're all Zooming every day. So it's, uh, it, it's interesting how quickly technology does, does advance and, and things change. So, and, and I, think it's, I think it's great news that they're talking about, you know, repurposing workers in, in that direction because, there's so much damage that's been done, and um, it's going to take it's going to take so many billions of dollars to to restore that landscape, and uh, and it's 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 important for us to start talking about that now. Absolutely, and and um, you know how profoundly important agriculture is, farmers, family farms, and that's one of the things I really appreciated about this story is that has kind of a, a modernist twist on the agony of whether a family farm is viable in the modern world and who should inherit it and what your where your loyalties should lie and uh, you see that all over every day and 
I agree. One one of the things that that I researched for the book too was the was the corporate farm, right? And and there's there's much more of that happening, uh, more and more. I mean, around the world, where large corporations are taking over the land, and so yeah, the family farm is uh, is is definitely endangered. And uh, so yeah, another reason to to write about it and and spark people's interest. I hope. Mm-hmm. Just to go back to language, um, you touched on it earlier that you it was important for you to weave your your culture of origin into the story. And um, as as a another Dutch girl, um, mm-hmm. it certainly endeared me to see how you wove um, colloquialisms or adages. You know that that Daniel was often thinking about his opa, his grandfather, and um the the expressions that he used to describe situations so just as how you described that you know storytelling and taking acting classes teaches you about language um i wondered if you could talk a little bit about you know those cultural um impressions of language that we as immigrants have that was a really fun part of writing this. I, it was very important to me to bring in uh, the uh, the Dutch, my Dutch culture, into the into the story, as you say. And I had such fun with those adages because my uh, my parents are are thank thank goodness they're still living and they they can still tell me these stories about their lifetimes and I tell some of those as a storyteller. But uh, but they so often uh, you know through through all of our lives as a family they would there'd be a particular situation and they'd come up with an adage in Dutch that would perfectly encapsulate the moment. And, uh, and so it's, it's definitely a language of adages. It's very important to people to speak metaphorically there. And uh, so that was actually a, quite a natural thing to bring into it. And, uh, and I had lots of fun because, you know, I, I came here when I was sick. So um, as you and I have talked about, I, my, I think I have about a, a you know, six-year-old level in my vocabulary, but, uh, so, but I still have a pretty good grounding. And so it was fun to, to go online and it was fun to talk to my parents about what particular expression might be good, you know, for this particular moment. And they were, my parents were such a great resource for me and uh, as was the World Wide Web. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, it's it's really a fun element, and and Daniel's Opa's wisdom definitely nails it throughout the book. Doreen Vanderstoop, before we go, I'm just curious um, how all of the innovative ways that you've had to use to promote this book during a global pandemic. There, there is so much technological innovation out there, and I mean, I had an online launch, which was great fun. I had people um, uh, participating from as far away as Ireland and the Cayman Islands, uh, that wouldn't have happened at Shelf Life Books. (laughs) Yeah. So although we were very upset, we couldn't have our our book launch at Shelf Life Books. It it just took on a whole new flavor. And uh, and so there's, there's, there's lots of interesting ways that I've been able to, uh, to do that. Well, Doreen, thank you so much for joining us today on Writer's Block. Um, It was lovely to chat with you, and thank you for writing this book, which I think is going to uh, remain one of the um, prophetic novels of, of our province. 
Well, thank you so much, Dinsany, for uh, for hosting me, and it's been an absolute delight talking to you about it. Born in Sierra Leone, Bertrand Bickersteth grew up in Edmonton, Calgary, and Olds, Alberta. After an English degree at UBC, Bertrand continued studying in the UK and later taught in the US. A return to Alberta provided him with new insights on black identity, and most of his writing has been committed to these perspectives ever since. Although he writes in several genres, anticlimactically, the topic is always the same. What does it mean to be black and from the prairies? He has also given many public talks, including a TED Talk for Bow Valley College's TEDx called The Weight of Words. His poetry has appeared in several publications, including most recently The Antagonist Review, Cosmonauts Avenue, and The Fieldstone Review. He has also been published in The Great Black North and the forthcoming anthology The Black Prairie Archives. In 2018, he was longlisted for the CBC Poetry Prize. He lives in Calgary, teaches at Olds College, and writes everywhere. Bertrand Bickerstaff, welcome to TGSW Writer's Block. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. You're here today with your powerful debut book of poems, The Response of Weeds, published by New West Press as part of its Crow Said Poetry Series. Tell us a little bit about the book. The Response of Weeds, first of all, the um, title comes from this understanding that I have of uh, weeds. Uh, I work at in Old College. It's an agricultural college, and I was always struck by how the instructors would talk about plants as being all from the same category of biology, but some are plants that we don't like and some are plants that we like. The weeds happen to be plants that come from somewhere else and thrive in their new environment precisely because they come from somewhere else. And I loved this metaphor of uh, plants coming from somewhere else and thriving very well um, because all the poems that I had been writing and that are in this collection are essentially about uh, reinscribing the usual Albertan landscape with uh, sensibilities of uh, blackness and black identity. Uh, I grew up in Alberta, but most of my life I was always asked, where are you from? Uh, and the one question that will, or sorry, the one answer that never satisfies people when you ask, when you're asked that question is, uh, I'm from here. So I wanted to write a collection of poems that demonstrated my here-ness um, through my blackness, but also to demonstrate blackness as being not this thing that is other and from somewhere else, but that is here and that it can be um, experienced in the landscape and thrives on its own terms as well as being from here. So that's essentially what the uh, collection of poetry is about. Beautiful. And you do that in a way that brings out so many layers of story. Your, your poems speak to how people write or erase the land, but also about how the land writes itself into our psyches or erases us. I'm curious how the prairie and its rivers became indelible for you. Yeah, so for me, everything in terms of my Albertan identity, everything often goes back to feeling alien and, um, and excluded. And so when I think of the prairies, I think of these vast um, spaces in which I feel vulnerable, in which I stand out in. And in fact, 
there is a, a slave narrative that I came across um, many years ago. Um, it's by, uh, what's his name? Henry Bibb, Henry Bibb. And he writes about escaping from the U.S. during slavery. And um, at one point, and he escaped several times, actually. It's a really interesting narrative, if anyone is interested in it. He went back and forth many times. He went back for his wife and his kids, and it's a very interesting narrative. But in one of his journeys, he describes uh, encountering a prairie. And what he writes struck me so, because it, it seemed to reflect my feeling. And he says, I always dreaded to come upon a prairie because then I would be exposed and people could see me and I would always hasten through the prairie as quickly as I could so I could get to the safety of beyond. Right. And for right, me, I thought... there's nowhere to hide. Exactly. There's nowhere to hide. Exactly right. And for me, I always felt like this really does, in a way, articulate my experience. Uh, because in part, being black on the prairie is like being hyper-invisible. Like you are either completely not seen at all, or you are only seen as blackness. And neither of those, of course, is you at all. So for me, the prairies was this space. It was this uh, paradoxical space that everybody else felt like, oh, yes, this is how we're defined. It's wheat fields and it's wide open, empty spaces and blue skies and that sort of thing. And for me, I always felt as though it was the place that exposed me. I felt vulnerable. So... Mm -hmm. That was where I first started to think about well, how can I write about this feeling so that people can sympathize or can, they, can, they can see my prairies as well. And uh, I remember I had come back on a, uh, I had been living out of the country for a while, and I'd come back on a holiday during the uh, summer. And um, I spent a lot of time driving across rural Alberta and seeing these wide open spaces. And when I got back home, I was living in Michigan at that point, I was writing poetry, and all of a sudden this super long poem came out. And it was had all these very long lines and an excess of words, and it just felt so prairie. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's it. You just let it come out like that. And, um, and yeah, and so it happened from there. But so for me, the prairies was uh, the space of vulnerability. And the water poems came completely instinctively. Uh, after I'd written that one prairie poem, I thought to myself, well, look, you did it once, so why don't you come up with a series of prairie poems and you can really chart this thing that is called blackness on the prairies. And I tried and tried and tried, and no prairies would come out. In fact, all that came out were images of water, water here. And I was living in Michigan at the time, so I think Lake Michigan was impacting me and I often reflect on um, the coastal cities of Vancouver and Freetown um, because my dad always said, when I lived in Vancouver, my dad always said, wow, flying into Vancouver reminds me of flying into Freetown, Sierra Leone. It looks so similar with the mountains and the ocean. Oh, so, interesting. Yes, very interesting. So these uh, juxtapositions were always playing in my mind. And I thought, um, why can't I write about prairies? I don't get it. It's all this water is coming. <laughs> so... Finally, I just thought, well, if water is what is coming out, then just let water come. And naturally, I thought to myself, well, what, what water can I talk about? Lakes on the prairies, 
well, you know, I had some experience with camping, some not so nice experiences actually with camping and cold lakes and things like that. But the rivers were the most obvious um, uh, image that uh, I could play with because rivers can flow through prairies as well. And so mm-hmm. I saw a way in which they were connected there. And so it was the vul- vulnerability that drew me to the prairies, and then it was the prairies that drew me to water, and rivers just naturally, so to speak, flowed from there. Wow, that's really cool. Many of these poems evoke historical black Albertans through their words, either real or imagined. Tell us how you became aware of these two often unsung narratives and why it was important to explore and honor them in your own words. Yeah, it's an excellent question. So when you grow up marginalized, especially in um, this part of the world, you grow up getting an education that doesn't quite fit your perceptions. And for me, what that meant was that in school, I learned a lot of history but those histories never reflected me. Mm-hmm. And one really important thing that I want to put out there is I often hear people talk about the importance of being able to see people that, that reflect you, to see people that look like you in history books and in great works of art and et cetera, et cetera. And I think one caveat I want to add to that is that it is not just that all of us and, and all, many of us are in that circumstance. Um, it's not just that we want to see reflections of ourselves, but that when you don't see yourself in something, you absorb that absence as part of your identity. And that's why it's important to be able to place these things in history, to be able to see yourself, because otherwise you grow up with this absence in you, and this is what you identify as and with. So You identify as not as, as an absence? As, not as an being absence, there? exactly. As an absence, as not being there. And it can be just as silly as, I'll give you my experience, just as silly as go to the store to buy a box of Band-Aids. The Band-Aid says flesh-colored. It is yeah. not your flesh-colored. Right? Yeah. If you add this up with the very many experiences that you have in your life that tell you you're not here, you're not here, you're not here, that's just one more thing that... Um, Uh, helps you to conclude that your identity is associated with absence. You're just, you're not really here. And so that's why I say it's, uh, it is important for us to see reflections of ourselves in important um, arenas, but that the importance of that is not just to see yourself. It is to counter the absenting of yourself. And that's what's very important. So for many of uh, people, many of us, people of color who grew up in Alberta, you don't, get any kind of uh, history that reflects you. Uh, and we end up doing our own kind of excavating, our own historical archaeology. And for me, my mother was the chief archaeologist. She would mm-hmm. often just let me know about an article she read here or talk about people that she worked with who are uh, descended from black pioneers and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I remember once she told me... Um, you know, there are black people who were born and raised here for generations, and they don't even know about these people here. And I remember thinking to myself, what? I never heard of that. That can't possibly be. I was about 13 at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Later on, I discovered, yeah, it's true. 
that there are generations of uh, black people who have lived here. And yeah, they the, don't... the founding, the founding fathers and mothers in, in lots of places, right? Exactly. We don't hear about them. We don't hear about them. That's right. So um, one day she sent me a, a book by uh, Cheryl Fogo. It was Cheryl Fogo's um, her memoir, uh, Pouring Down Rain. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading through that, and this is where it was confirmed to me about what my mom had been telling me. There are people born and raised here for generations, black people. Um, and I doubted her because, first, I was a teenager, and you're just supposed to doubt your parents when you're a teenager. And uh, secondly, because her evidence was, oh, well, I work with this lady. And this lady, she's black, and her grandparents are black, and they're from here. And I would just think, yeah, right, maybe you just didn't hear that properly, or, you know, or maybe – she was born here, but not her grandparents. Right. So when it's I got to be an this, aberration. Can't it, be exactly. Yeah. Which I guess speaks to that when you absorb the notion of yourself as an absence, you are much more prepared to accept that narrative than facts that are given to you. Yeah. So well, I was reading this book and I see, wow, look at that. There are generations of them that have been here. As you said, they helped to found the province. Many of those families were here before Alberta was even Alberta. Wow. Then I thought to myself, why didn't they even, like, why did we not learn about this? Why don't they teach this for crying out loud? I learned about homesteaders on the prairie. They didn't talk about uh, African-Americans who left the U.S. and joined many of those people who emigrated into Canada to help to create the uh, Western provinces. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was almost like, um, you know, I call it my... um, what was that uh, Jim Carrey movie where he was uh, Truman, the Truman show. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you think life is just this normal thing. And then all of a sudden you look behind the wall and you realize there's a whole other history going on here. And I was shocked. I thought, why don't they teach this to us? So, you know, all I'm describing to you is a very common occurrence. I think that many of us have, um, especially people of color in this part of the world, where you know that there must be more to the story. And some of us do actually go and discover more of that story. And some of us are fortunate enough, uh, as I was, to have gone and done graduate studies in history and so learn how to be a researcher and to search things. And right, because so, it's not easy to find even that information. It is not easy, no. And, and it's, you know, it's easier now with the Internet. But, you know, back in those days what I was doing was I was literally going through microfiche and microfilm and just scrolling through these newspapers from, you know, 1893 and just reading newspaper after newspaper until you would see a reference to Molly Smith, colored woman, blah, 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 right? Mm -hmm. And then mark that down. And that can take hours, hours for you just to find one little line. And it's very frustrating, too. So it's boring, it's tedious, and it's, it's hard. So, um, yeah, I was very fortunate that I had that training, and it was the most natural thing for me to want to bring that to my poetry, um, mainly because I recognize it's, it's difficult for someone who's trained to find these things to find them. And if there is no impulse on the part of the educational system to provide these, uh, this information, then I owe it to my readers to make it easy for them to get this information. So I have to include those historical figures. And so for me, I feel like I'm doing a little bit of the service that should have been done to me in school, frankly. 
Right? Mm. So when I include figures, um, I'm just trying to remember who did I put in there. Um, like I have uh, Matthew Henson, who is the uh, um, explorer who went uh, repeatedly um, made it to the North Pole. Um, and I have um, musicians like, um, what's his name? Uh, Miller? Big Miller? Yes, that's right. Big Miller, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. I had a great time reading his um, unpublished biography in the uh, provincial archives. So interesting. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to bring those figures into the poems so that people see that, oh yeah, there is a history here and there is something that we can connect not just to ourselves, but to the actual creation and the, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for and the expression of this province. And that is why that's the how and the wherefore and the why of, um, Blackness in history for me. Maybe you can tell us uh, a little bit about some of those Black Albertans who you talk about oh, in yeah. your poems. People maybe like Daniel Lewis or yes, Sylvester right. Long. Like there's just so many, there's so uh, many fascinating characters in these Ex poems. Yes, exactly. So uh, Daniel Lewis is a relative of Mildred Lewis. Mildred Lewis married John Ware. John Ware is, um, I like to claim, is the most famous cowboy that Canada produced. And um, he happens to be a black cowboy. And, um, you know, Cheryl Fogo has written a lot about him, about how centering he is as a figure for uh, her and for black people, I think, in general. Because the cowboy narrative is certainly, traditionally, one of the most whitest narratives that there are. And so to find out that um, there are such things as black cowboys and that not only were there black cowboys, there were black cowboys here in Alberta is, was very, very uh, centering for me. It was very centering. So and the his, story of, of Mildred and John, and I guess I, I have a little more affection for Mildred. It's a very <laughs> beautiful story, I think. You know, because yeah. it's, it, it is the cowboy rancher trope, right. but then it has all this this uh, thread about honor and education. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. And, you know, the most interesting thing I find about their relationship in terms of, um, you know, how I encountered it is that in many ways, Mildred was John Ware's scribe. The, the, the myth is that, uh, because John Ware was a former slave, that he had never learned to read and write. And I don't know if that's 100% true or not. You know, it is very likely he was a slave, certainly. Um, and therefore, it is likely that he didn't know how to read and write. But uh, many black people did learn how to read and write, if not in slavery, then afterwards. Um, mm -hmm. But nevertheless... It does seem to be the case that she did write, pen a few things for him in terms of contracts and requests for brands and things like that. And um, being a writer, I just find that um, I love that connection. I love that mm -hmm. that's one way in which they joined, mm -hmm. uh, which they're, yeah, in which they were related. So uh, Daniel Lewis is an uncle of, uh, uh, sorry, is a uh, brother of Mildred Lewis. And, um, 
he lived in southern Alberta, and I believe the poems, I think he comes up, shows up in a couple of poems in there. He's, uh, he, I found him in a newspaper, actually, in which he uh, put out an ad to um, open a business. And I thought, well, how Albertan? Not only is he black, but he is being entrepreneurial, and he was doing it a century ago. So I thought that's got to go in the uh, in the collection of poems. Uh, there are other people, though. Uh, for example, I have uh, fur traders as well that I put in. So homesteaders are important to Alberta, uh, and fur traders are important to Canada as well. Um, there's the Bungo family. Uh, this is a family of um, black fur traders. Uh, they're also a mixed black and indigenous, actually. They come from... Um, uh, I guess it's like the uh, Red River region, roughly. There's a mm -hmm. whole long story to um, their origins. And it just occurred to me that I wrote an article for the uh, Canadian Encyclopedia. And so if people are interested in those details, they can look it up in there. Okay, so there's, oh, a cool. whole, yeah, yeah. there's a whole lo uh, a long story behind them. But um, the Bungle family is probably the most well-known um, successful fur trading family. Um, the father and two sons did very well, and they were very well known. Um, the father's name is Pierre, and uh, the two sons are Stephen and George. Stephen was uh, on an expedition that um, the Roland and Mackenzie ex expedition that uh, did the first trek up the uh, Bow River to uh, just try to map that area and see if there was not a way uh, across the Rockies or through the Rockies. And uh, it was an unsuccessful uh, uh, journey, but um, what it did do is it provided an opportunity for quite possibly uh, one of the first black people to ever uh, be recorded in Alberta. Now, mm. there's, one, there's one other one who didn't make my book, but uh, Stephen is probably the second one. And so he would have been in Alberta 1820 in that year. The expedition was 1820, 1821. It would have been 1820, which is well before most people are taught that black people arrived in Alberta. Because mm -hmm. I think the first black person got off the boat last year, I believe it was. And then <laughs> Black Lives Matter started, and there, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that seems like a, a uh, segue into the, the question of what it's like to launch this book at this particular time, not just that, you know, there's no book launches and book festivals and all the things that that uh, debut poets are supposed to uh, love doing, but there's also this little thing called a plague going yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there is this massive collective, I don't even know what the word is, awakening. Um, Maybe, yeah. called Black Lives Matter. So yes. what's this experience been like for you, Bertrand? These are fascinating times. They really are. Um, I remember when the pandemic lockdown first uh, took place, and um, I told my son, who is always rolling his eyes whenever me and his mother mentioned things like 9-11 or O.J. Simpson's white um, suburban or you know, things like that. And uh, I told him, you know what? This is definitely your thing now. Like, yeah. th this is 
a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence that is affecting the entire world, which makes it even you know more impacting than um, O.J. Simpson ever was. Yeah. Um, that is uh, completely out of this world that we have to deal with. I mean, this is your thing. You will be talking about this to your grandchildren. I promise you, if you have them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So very, very strange. Now, in terms of the um, of not being able to do, you know, live readings and book launches and things like that, I don't. That doesn't. That has not affected me that much. The the fact that there is this illness out there, that is, you know, it's much more serious than my book, certainly. And people in my family have even been affected by COVID. So I'm not that concerned. Mostly, though, I think I'm not concerned because it is my first book. And I don't know what it's like to have a book launch. And I guess I still don't know what it's like. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel like it's a huge change or a huge upset. I probably should be upset. On the other hand and possibly because of Black Lives Matter, I have received a lot of very favorable feedback um, with respect to the book. And I think that has also uh, buoyed me. Now, Black Lives Matter uh, has been, uh, even in my household, it has been a divisive um, phenomenon. And I say division, I mean, we're all on the same side in my household. Let me be clear about that. But mm -hmm. it has been um, intellectually and emotionally taxing in different ways. And I find myself kind of um, teetering between my son's needs, uh, who is um, 20 this year and has been feeling the burden of his friends who don't quite get it. Mm. And uh, and with uh, in his experience too, I you know I feel a little bit of guilt because I was raised by immigrants and they were wholly unprepared to deal with racism. I mean, they just they did not see it coming. I think. Mm. And so when I when I went to go and seek help from them, I would just get these tepid responses, and you know they tried in their own way, but they just really didn't understand how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And so when I had my son. I knew that I was going to provide him with tools to be able to deal with the weird questions and the awkward moments and things like that. And I feel I've done a fairly good job with that. But I also see that he has an awareness of racial discourses that most of his friends, particularly his white friends, mm -hmm. um, do not have at all. And so I see he's frustrated when he has conversations with him, with them. And so I'm trying to kind of talk him through these uh, situations, something I didn't expect to have to do. Uh, and then on the other hand, I have my wife who's just enraged by things like Blue Lives Matter and All Lives Matter and um, is struggling with just uh, social media and um, the constant barrage of these messages. And mm -hmm. um, so my... My, uh, sorry, my advice to my son is mostly intellectual, but I tried to be emotionally supportive. My advice to my wife is mostly emotional, and I try to provide some intellectual uh, reasoning for it. But I see that if we in this household, if we are being intellectually and emotionally taxed, that out there in the world, there is no surprise, there's no wonder that people are going through these 
ruptures of experiences. It doesn't surprise me at all. Mm-hmm. I think I mentioned to you that uh, being black in Alberta is like being hyper invisible. Yeah, you use that word. It's very provocative yeah. to think about. Yeah. Yes, you're either completely invisible or only your blackness comes into play, which still makes you invisible. But not your humanity, your humanness, exactly. not that's yourself. Right. Exactly, yeah, that's oh. right. You're not your humanness. That's exactly right. So I feel that Black Lives Matter is overall a needed movement, for sure. Mm-hmm. I also feel it playing on this sense of hyper-invisibility that I have as well, that I've always had. When it started up, my first feeling was one of uh, skepticism. And um, I felt skeptical because, you know, what the Black Lives Matter movement is saying and has been saying for the last six or uh, so years is no different than what we have been saying always, always. Like, this is not new. Like, it didn't just start at all. No. You remember when I was talking about that creative writing teacher who said, I just don't see anything of your the black experience. Yes, yes. Tell that story. Yeah. 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 Okay, sure. So I'll tell this story as a uh, preview. So um, I was a student at UBC, and I was in the creative writing program. And um, though I couldn't major in it, and anyone who has parents of immigrants will be able to um, understand where I'm coming from there. I mean, you, just, <laughs> you, you cannot justify a writing major to your, your immigrant parents. It just makes no sense at all. Be sensible. You need to exactly. read. <laughs> exactly. So uh, I was taking courses, and uh, one of the courses was this uh, short story course. And... Um, For whatever reason, this idea came to me about how to express um, my black identity as I've experienced it. And this is when I was maybe 22 or something like that. And um, so I tried it and I wrote this story and I had this kind of unique form I was playing around with. And, you know, it all came out. And when I finished, I thought to myself, wow, that was almost like a poem that just kind of comes out. I thought, wow, that I think you got it. This is it. This is what it means to be black and Albertan as dramatized in this particular story. I think I've basically got it. So I took that story in and it was read by the class and discussed. And then when the prof um, gave his summative comment, he said something along the lines of, um, well, I really enjoyed this story, Bertrand. It was very good. And clearly, you know how to write. But one question I have for you is, I do not see anything of the black experience in your writing. Where is the black experience? And I was so deflated by those words. So deflated. Just like so cringeworthy. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You know, but again, I was young. I didn't really know how to respond to these things. And I guess going back to our theme about the absences, you know, I felt that, well, maybe... I did something wrong. Maybe he can't see it because I didn't do it. Mm. And so then I spent some time thinking about it. And I will, just to shorten the story, I'll say that over the years, I had several experiences that then demonstrated to me that, no, actually, it's there. It's in the story. 
he was just unable to apprehend it. He couldn't see it. And the reason why I tell that story is because we have been going through stuff forever, and we have been saying it forever. But for whatever reason, people have not been able to hear it. Another quick story I'll give, and this is actually one of the poems in the uh, in my collection called Accidental Agriculture. Mm-hmm. The, the poem itself is just sort of a compendium of multiple experiences, but um, definitely this happened. Um, so I would have stuff happen to me at school, and then I would complain, and the teacher would somehow poo-poo it, somehow. So, oh, he didn't mean it that way or, you know, something like that. Or, well, he was only joking, I'm sure, right, something like that. And at one point or at some points, it might even have devolved into a fight. If somebody said something stupid and I tried to defend myself. Mm-hmm. And um, more than once I found myself in the principal's office after one of these fights, and somehow I would end up having an experience in which Yes, maybe that kid who provoked me with a nasty racial slur did get punished, but I would somehow end up getting punished too in that episode. Okay, so the the principal would say something like, well, you shouldn't have fought back, or Mm. you're so much bigger than him, you should have known better. You're older, you shouldn't have. So I would end up being punished too. And that was part of my the formative experiences that would just teach me that you know, your experience is not being perceived. It's not being apprehended by these people. They, they mm-hmm. can't see what's going on. But when I was young, I just accepted that. Well, I guess it's me. It's got something to do with me. And you when erased got, yourself again. And, uh, exactly. It was just that of self-erasure. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I got older, I realized that, no, it's not me. It's actually them, and they can't see it. So... Now when Black Lives Matter has started up again, and for the first time, we're having significant numbers of white people joining, I say to myself, I am so happy to see all those white people out there. I am. It warms my heart to see that kind of camaraderie and support coming, particularly from the perspective that really could not throughout my entire life apprehend what I was going through, even when I said it to their faces, even when I wrote a story that was blatantly about it, et cetera, et cetera. So that warms my heart. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I wonder, are they really seeing? Are they really apprehending? Because truly what is going on now is no different than what has gone on before. No different. And I don't really hear that critique of, well, what have we been doing before? Why? What are the ways in which we accepted this before? Yeah, how are we culpable and what are we going to do after the rally ends? Exactly, yeah. And, and e- so every a, day after that. And every day after that, exactly. Yeah. So while I am uh, heartened somewhat by this, and I am, I am, I am also a little bit skeptical, and that was my reaction from the beginning. I was just a little bit skeptical. I'll wait and see what happens. Now, If this helps me sell a few books, I guess I shouldn't complain, right? But I also do see how there is a little bit of that hyper-invisibility that could be at play as well. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I don't like to think that that would be the only or the defining reason for my book being successful. But on the other hand, Dinsney, I'll just say, I think being black and Albertan has just raised me to always have that suspicion. I don't think I could not have it, Black Lives Matter or not. Well, thank you, Bertrand Bickerstaff, so much for spending this time with us on CJSW Writer's Block. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure, Dinsney Dronick.